Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, readers and listeners, this is the PRC Show, and I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. But actually, it is reading Parting the Waters, and this is episode 013. We are in folly and and double digits now. We're moving right along, and we just left um, Albany, Georgia. Uh, and But before we get into all that, let's just do a little introductions here. I'm Paul Cooley again, I said, and I have my friend Gabe. Gabe, how are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be here. Um, how's everything going on with your family? And you know what? We're not going to get into that. Um, so we should get into... <laughs> it's been a while since we've recorded, so um, me and Gabe will exchange pleasantries later. But I do want to read some letters because we've gotten a lot. So this is a letter from uh, Roy in Niagara Falls, New York. And he says... I, this, I think this is very cute. He goes, first time, long time. That means that he's a first time emailer, but he's a long time listener. First time, long time. Love the show, but I do think you were focusing too much on politics and the Kennedys. While that must be mentioned, let's not get into the narrative of the tragedy of Camelot and how JFK was our last great president. Or maybe that's on branch. Either way, love the show. Um, sorry, we're going to get more into some Kennedy stuff this chapter, I believe, and that's just how it is. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, the the subtitle of the book is America in the King Years. Yes. So this America involves some Kennedys. Yeah. And I do want to get to, there are a couple, I'll, I'll pick on Branch again this chapter, because there's a couple things where I think he goes a little bit off on a tangent, but it is in the King Years, so he tries to cover everything. This is another one from Beth in Columbus, Indiana, and she says... Why has it been so long since the last show? I'm a member of a local podcast listeners club as part of my Seventh Day Adventist social group. Is that what they are? I don't know. Okay. We meet weekly and bring side dishes and drink coffee and beer and listen to podcasts, then talk about them afterwards. When there isn't a new reading Parting the Waters episodes, which we all love, we end up fighting because we can't agree on what to listen to, and then Frank ends up drinking too much, and the whole thing devolves into shouting and arguments and stuff like that. Anyways, please keep us unified and keep making more episodes. We love every episode, and um, Gabe, I think I may know you from grade school. You sound great. Um, thank you, Beth. I mean, that's a lot there. I mean, you sound like a goofball, but I will say this. We are not professionals in podcasting or reading Parting the Waters. Or history. <laughs> or history. Um, I mean, I did major in history. Does that hmm. sort of count? Hmm. Uh, I, I went on a vacation, and then workers in my union went on strike. <laughs> and those two things prevented me from coming to do a recording. So I apologize to the good people of Columbus, Indiana, and I will get back on the job. Yes, thank you, Gabe. And I almost started a second podcast about the War of 1812. But like everything with the War of 1812, it did get a little boring. Um, I got one more letter here from uh, Anthony in Lansdale, PA, and says, Paul, are you okay? Call me. Perhaps you drink too much coffee. The show's okay. It's no Chapo Trap House or Behind the Bastards or Sublation Media. I don't even know any of these. Um, but you guys are doing okay. Thanks. Um, okay, anyway. Um, this chapter is, we're going to get into in a second, is called... What is it? This is We're going to get in some FBI talk here. I mean, looking back on it, this chapter looks like really important context and background for events that are going to come to a head later. So it's important to read and understand what's happening, even if it's not a dramatic event in and of itself. 
Yes, there's a lot of little tidbits here, and we're going to get into it. We're going to take a quick break and get right into chapter 15, which is called Hoover's Triangle and King's Machine. Chapter 15, Hoover's Triangle and King's Machine, and Branch starts off with his cute pop culture silliness. Is it silliness? I don't know. It's 1962, and he leads off with Mickey Mantle won the MVP, John Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize in Literature, John Glenn orbits the globe, smoking was still cool, even though people were thinking like, the professionals like, you know, it's not good for you. Baby boomers were turning 16, Volkswagen is introduced, and Ford creates smaller, shiny creations to compete. Uh, branches. America was king. The Beverly Hillbillies are popular. Um, and then future writers chose nine. I don't know what this means. Future writers choose 1962 as the year of nostalgia. Perfect setting for surf comedies, carefree romances. Um, and I think of 1962 as still the 1950s. Even when I'm reading this, it reinforces that to me. Um, I don't really think, and maybe I think scholars would say this. The 1960s don't really begin until when, Gabe? I think we can all agree. November 22nd, 1963. You know what that date is? Well, I think uh, I think it's an important date, uh, turning point in the life of the country. This is when the president's yeah, killed, yeah. killed, isn't it? Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I, I honestly don't know... Um, how culturally to say when the capital T, capital S, the 60s begin. I mean, certainly there's... Um... Well, here, you know what? I'm going to interrupt you. We don't need to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we don't, we, it's, it's literally true. We don't have to talk about We don't that. have to talk about that. And just to <laughs> emphasize again why we're not really in the 60s is because we're going back to old sourpuss who has nothing to do with the 60s. And this is funny. If we know, if uh, loyal listeners of the show... You know, you remember who Old Sourpuss is, right? Uh, that's who I call him. Boys, it's it's, it's right. uh, horrible of me because I think yes. he's a great writer. But um, so he enters the picture. W. E. B. Du Bois. Um, why are we talking about him? It's gonna make it's gonna make a little bit of sense. So he applies for member. This is so off the wall. It seems like it. So he applies for membership of the Communist Party of the USA at age ninety three. He says, "My mind is settled." This guy's old. He was born before Gandhi. This is what Branch writes. During Andrew Johnson's impeachment in trial in 1868, more than 60 years after breaking the color line of Harvard doctorates, 50 years after founding the NAACP, 30 after surrendering his beloved Crisis magazine to a sports writer. I love that part in the early part of the book. Sports writer named Roy Wilkins. And 10 after being hauled, manacled into federal court for advocating peace talks in Korea. The old man decided that Capitalism cannot reform itself. It is doomed to self-destruction. No universal selfishness can bring social good to all. And then I think this is just classic him. You know, he's he's breaking with the, you know, liberal ideology and saying I'm a communist. But in his application to Gus Hall, the Communist Party, he says, I do have a list of grievances of the Communist Party that I do need to go over. So it's still an old grump. Um it's funny because I'm reading this. I'm like, who cares? This is, I mean, I find it interesting, but what, what's the point? Why is this relevant? Well, this makes its way to Hoover's file on King. 
Um, King uh, cites this defection by, you know, one of the most brilliant Negro scholars in America as a warning about the limits of Negro patience. You know, we talk about the civil rights movement for the most part being unified, but he's kind of saying, hey, there can be, there can be no doubt that if um, the problem of racial discrimination is not solved in the not-too-distant future, some Negroes, out of frustration and discontent and despair, will turn to some other ideology. And then he doesn't speak publicly of Du Bois for six years. Um, Hoover and everyone else, really, they mark this, but it's insignificant. And so this is kind of symbolic of this chapter because there's a lot of little tidbits like that, right? Um, and we're going to tie this back into some more FBI stuff. Any thoughts on, on Du Bois and this, this little thing? Um, other, I, other ideologies? Br Branch points out that nobody in white America and hardly anyone in black America um, comments on the fact mm -hmm. uh, that um, this towering intellectual of, of old has committed this ultimate political transgression and that that is a kind of a, a sad statement on his his standing um it may also be a uh, a statement about the significance of the communist party usa in 1962 oh yeah and, and which which we'll go we'll on talk to about talk, a second, talk, yeah. talk about in in a minute um i think this I, I will just note this thing that king does here where he says well, it's worth noting that if we don't see progress and reform and change, that people will take on radical ideologies. Other ideologies, I, but yes, that, yes I, I, I think I, it's a good point. I think later in life, uh, in in his career, he'll 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 make this kind of reference around riots. Of course, he's 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 not a communist in a sense; he's an anti-communist, and of course, he's nonviolent. He's against violence, so he's not for joining the Communist Party any more than he's for rioting. But he will sometimes use a riot or use someone sort of stepping beyond the pale in this sense politically to say, "Well, if if my path doesn't work, if if you the establishment, if you the power structure in society don't start making social reforms and changes." then you're going to see more of this, which can read almost as like a backhanded threat. Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, or simply as a prophecy. And um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of interesting rhetorical device. You can see it either as a sense of realism and, and foresight, or you can see it as the kind of steely edge of his uh, organizing. Well, in the novel uh, version of this, it's like it's foreshadowing of the Black Panthers, the Weather Underground, blah, 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 you know. So Kennedy-Hoover battle. So Attorney General Kennedy wanted to shift the FBI priorities from domestic intelligence to organized crime. Again, when I'm reading this, I'm like, what does this have to do with civil rights? I don't understand this. It's going to tie in. So just bear with us, everyone. It's kind of a funny chapter. So Branch mentions that... Um, Kennedy's, you know, it's like, should we go after communists or the mob? Remember, everyone, students of history, the Communist Party was big in the 30s, big with the labor movement, strong in the, in the 40s for the most part. Remember, the USSR and the USA were against the Nazis. But by the late 1940s, uh, the tide sours with the CP. And 1956, we should all know this, leader of the Soviets, Khrushchev, makes a secret speech that is leaked talking about Stalin's crimes. So a ton of people leave the CP around the globe. That's why it's funny that... 
the the party's de- essentially decimated that um, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, joins joins in 1962 after everyone pretty much leaves. So RFK actually cites the CPUSA collapse in 56 that, you know, there's 1,500 FBI informants within the party supplying a large part of the budget and the membership of the party. He says it was wasteful and kind of like a vestige of the McCarthy area fo- a focus. Um, and he's appalled to learn that only a dozen FBI agents were targeting organized crime as opposed to a thousand on political security. Political security being, you know, radicals, communists, and, and trying to infiltrate the government. Um, RFK wanted a reversal. He wanted more on organized crime. Uh, he, was anno- he was annoyed that the FBI denied existence of organized, organized crime. And actually, Gabe, did you find that a little interesting to me? I was like, why Why was there so little on organized crime at the time? But we're going to talk about it in a second. I, are you, you want me to keep going or do you want to comment? Well, I, I think that um, Kennedy's, Robert Kennedy's career and interests and um, Hoover's career and interests are, are on a collision course yes. here, right? Um, this is something that I think um, that Branch doesn't stress. But while his brother was in the Senate as the senator from Massachusetts. Robert Kennedy was counsel to the McClellan Committee, which was the Senate committee investigating organized crime and the labor movement. Okay. And in particular, um, pressing the Teamsters Union and Jimmy Hoffa around their connections with with organized crime, some other unions as as well. And Kennedy... um, Robert Kennedy, as uh, little we have to keep differentiating. RFK uh, is a real bulldog, mm-hmm. really aggressively pursuing corruption in in the labor movement, and I think that he thinks that um, there's plenty of evidence that organized crime is a problem in society, and that it corrupts institutions, which as a Democrat, he thinks are important to society, right? I mean, it, it's sort of a, it's a little hard to understand from today's perspective. But when the one out of every three workers in the country is part of a union, right. then what happens in the labor movement is front page news. Um, the the Teamsters Union had two million members at the time, right? There were a mem- Teamsters in every county in every state in in the country, and so the the debates and the the legal confrontations. Um, around what was happening in the Teamsters really uh, was front page news. And so he he had a profile and it was really the strength of that that put him in a, a position to be a credible attorney so general. So what's your sense of Hoover not being interested in that? That's the kind so, of brain. So remember Ho- Hoover Hoover's interest going back to the aftermath of World War 1 yeah. is in establishing a uh, intelligence and counterintelligence agency that it was although Hoover had been involved in hunting for criminals as as a as a young FBI mm-hmm. agent, you know, early in in the days of, of the organization, he understands that there's much more power and influence, and you're much more central in society if, in fact, your responsibility is national security. Okay, and I think he also ha- has an analysis that it's hard to effectively prosecute the mafia that um, there, there are too many sort of layers and structures that he, he's not going to be able to get get, yeah. get victories. And so 
he consistently downplays the influence of organized crime, and he constantly wants to focus on, excuse me, fighting subversion. And, and RFK, t- he tells a British journalist that the CPUSA was feeble and less of a threat, um, and its membership consists largely of FBI agents. Hoover called them a, a Trojan horse committed to bringing the nation to international communism and leaked some info to a congressman that Stanley Levson was a secret CP member taking orders from the Kremlin and guiding MLK. This message, this message here, was troublesome for the civil rights movement. Uh, this message of the troublesome civil rights movement was a Moscow skirmish line, and only Hoover knew the details. You know, goes to, um, like Hoover writes this in a memo to share with, uh, sends to RFK. You know, they have access to the White House. You guys better be careful. You know, you're you're eating with, you're sharing a meal with uh, King. Kind of intimidating him, it seems like, or... Um, like saying, like, hey, Kennedy boys, I have some dirt on you. That's what it seemed like Gabe was saying. Sure, like what sure. Grant was saying. Right. I mean, again, to to be objective, the, in the early 60s, the Communist Party in, in the United States was about as marginalized and enfeebled as any Communist Party in any Western country uh, in in the whole global North, really. I, yeah. I, I think that uh, it, it had... Almost no influence on any part of society at this point, um, and Kennedy is is correct. Yeah, I mean, just if we look at other history, oh, it's, sure. it's entirely true. But that doesn't serve Hoover's um, self interest and organizational sort of reason to be at all. And so, throughout this chapter, you see him both obscuring and exaggerating uh, to weaponize information and or or the possibility of information to make himself a central player in American society and politics. And Byron White, an assistant AG, was concerned about Levson, but no evidence he could find any. The FBI tried to recruit uh, Levson as a spy twice, and nothing came of that. Um, A little tidbit, RFK Travels the Globe um, mentions that not one area of the world where people don't ask me about civil rights. Okay. Now, let's move on to the more FBI funniness, but this is the uh, sex mob scandal. And I think it kind of tie it definitely ties into this. And I have a little bit of an argument at the end of this. Why? So a, like sex slash mob. It's not a mob of people having sex. It's <laughs> yeah. sex and the mob. This is complicated and funny. So if I get this wrong, please fix it for me, Gabe. The FBI arrests some folks for placing like private citizens for placing illegal wiretaps at the home of a singer, Phyllis McGuire. Robert Mahew, who is a former FBI agent working for Howard Hughes and gangster Sam Momo Giancana, was the principal character here. Hoover loathed Ma- Mahu. Okay. Um, and Sam Momo Giancana is a Chicago gangster. RFK wanted Giancana, but Giancana, am I saying that name right? Giancana. Giancana was sanctioned by the FBI to uh, do this wiretap and see if Phyllis McGuire could help with the assassination of (laughs) Fidel Castro. And so while this wiretapping is going on of Phyllis McGuire, um, sanctioned by the CIA, Giacana asked the CIA, say, hey, while you're listening, can you just double check that Phyllis McGuire is not two-timing me? And Gabe, just so you know, two-timing is an old expression that actually means cheating. 
just, I mean, I know some of our listeners, it's a very old, antiquated term. But Running around town? Yeah, running around town, yeah. And the, the CIA was kind of obliged, like, sure, why not? Um, so McGuire, it was discovered, was upset that Giacana had a second mistress named Judith Campbell. My God, this is so confusing. So Frank Sinatra introduced gangster, Cam- ga- the, you know, Judith Campbell to... Uh, <laughs> Frank Sinatra introduced Campbell Giacana, and he also introduced Campbell to John Kennedy. Here we go. We're coming back into reality, like importance. Giacana liked the idea that he shared a mistress with the president of the, of the United States. This is why it gets back to Hoover. So Hoover sees this, he learns this, and he sees he has leverage or whatever. He has some some dirt. Kennedy is having sex with a gangster girlfriend to try to kill Castro. Hoover finds this, you know, sort of amusing. And it also, I think, points out the way Branch writes is that the CIA are clowns and, like, organized crime is a joke. And this is not really a threat to national security. It's just a big funny game. Um you know, Kennedy wants to attack the mob. Meanwhile, his brother, RFK, wants to attack the mob. Meanwhile, his brother is working with them, screwing their girlfriends and working on a fantastical plan to assassinate, you know, a foreign pres- leader. Um, this was actually written down in a memo uh, that on February 27th, 1962, some version of this um, that kind of uh, gets um gives license or credibility to start the wiretap on Stanley Levinson. I keep saying this wrong. Um, anyway, silliness. Thoughts? Well. America and the King years. It's, <laughs> it's, it's useful to understand because it goes to the compromised position that John Kennedy is potentially in. If anybody was to shine a light on all of this, yes, and it it strengthens Hoover's institutional hold beyond the ability to to weaponize the possibility of sort of reds under the bed in the civil rights movement, right? That this really unseemly connection between um, organized crime, uh, opposition to Castro sort of collaboration with the CIA, but then also with this with the kind of celebrity milieu that John Kennedy enjoyed and his own sort of sexual adventures creates the space in which you could imagine a powerful uh, counterintelligence official come in and saying, yeah. Mr. President, I want you to be aware that there are we know th- this information. Right. I want to protect you from it. It's another way of saying I have a file about this, <laughs> right, right? Right, and it's a kind of of leverage that I think Hoover spent decades cultivating um, on all kinds of people. And the 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 point about the wiretaps and the the, the bugs. In fact, there's at some point um, Branch just sort of steps out of his role as historical narrator with this long footnote, ranting just ranting about how Hoover was allowed to conduct illegal surveillance of Americans um, beyond the mm-hmm. uh, the any law or even the yeah. Supreme, Supreme Court ruling for decades. And it was simply tolerated by president after president after president, in part because they were afraid of him, of what he yeah. had already gathered about them or their allies or their family members. We're going to take a turn back to the civil rights movement now. <laughs> and so uh, and Branch just abruptly does that. Now, it's January 8th, 1962. Fred Shuttlesworth goes to Birmingham from his new home in Cincinnati, Cincinnati 
He was probably tired of getting bombed or whatnot. He goes, uh, he has to go back to Birmingham uh, for a prosecution from a 1958 from sitting in the front of a, on the seat of a bus. He lost an appeal on a technicality. King asked RFK for help and Burke Marshall, like another assistant AG, responded that he couldn't do anything. Um, further absurd is that federal judge Hobart Grooms sentenced six men in the Freedom Rider Aniston Mayhem uh, incident, five years probation, um, one could serve a term concurrent with a prior burglary sentence. Branch writes that none of the defendants would spend a single day in jail for their vicious attacks on one bus, whereas Shuttlesworth would serve 90 days merely for sitting in front of another. That night, uh, we have some violence here and dynamite bombs damaged three Birmingham churches that recently hosted mass meetings, including Shuttlesworth, Shuttleworth's former church. It sent a policeman driving by uh, to the hospital, blasting his car 100 yards. Uh, worst person in mid-century American history, that's what I'm, ca I'm calling this person, Bull Connor, he blames these three church bombings on black people. And he's running for governor, and he said his first order of business was to buy 100 new police dogs and sick them on any freedom rider who entered, the, who entered Alabama. King pleads with RFK and says it's not safe for Shuttlesworth and asks for protection. King's asking also why the Justice Department is not investigating the triple church bombing. Burke Marshall's kind of embarrassed and said he couldn't get involved, but was looking into it. He blamed some things that the Ike administration set up that is hamstringing him or something. Um, and then there amasses this large crowd. I'm kind of pushing through here, but there's a, there's a they have a kind of like a rally, a large crowd for the jailed preachers, Shuttlesworth and, and Pfeiffer. Um, he was the other preacher uh, with Shuttlesworth at the 16th Street Baptist Church. King comes. He gives this moving speech. I think it's kind of dark. He says... I wish I could tell you our road ahead is easy, that we are in the promised land, that we won't have to suffer and sacrifice any more, but it is not so. We have got to be prepared. The time is coming when the police won't protect us. The mayor, the police commissioner, won't think with clear minds. Then we can expect the worst. We want to be free. Not an uplifting message. Um, you know, I, I, that was interesting to me reading that. It was kind of gave me chills. Like, Jesus, you know, trying to be positive, getting the cr troops together. It's like, things are going to get worse, guys. Um, <laughs> it's not wrong. Yeah. So two weeks later, U.S. Supreme Court <clears throat> unanimously ordered grooms to free Shuttlesworth on appeal. Thankfully, Shuttlesworth is free. This is, I want to ask you about this. So... Wyatt Walker says the world situation for the Negro will be straightened out by the three K's. You know, he's excited. Kennedy, Khrushchev, and King. Okay, I kind of get the Kennedy thing. I kind of get the, the the King thing, obviously. What's the deal with Wyatt Walker um, referencing Khrushchev? Is it because it's a distraction and an embarrassment to the world? or like that? No, I didn't it, understand it, it's just Kennedy and, and Khrushchev are the most powerful men on the planet. And he's putting the head of the SCLC in the same sentence with them. I think that's it. 
Okay, he's just like he's not he's not literally saying that Khrushchev is like King or King is like Kennedy. Well, or, no, but I thought like that they were going to straighten out like Khrushchev is going to straighten out civil rights in America by saying, "Hey, America, you need to." No, no, I think I think he means that Kennedy meeting with Khrushchev will resolve international tensions, and Kennedy meeting with dealing with King will resolve the, the uh, domestic okay. problems. Okay, very good. In the meantime. Uh, there's a boycott of Birmingham segregated uh, stores downtown and Shuttlesworth and Pfeiffer are arrested again in this chapter. And this, this kind of happens. Birmingham is briefly mentioned in the background, but we never really go there. I don't think it's kind of a thing that's going to be happening. Um, and then branch takes kind of stock of things, what's going on. He says, uh, you know, there's positive stuff going on with fundraising of the SCLC, voter registration, recruitment of professional cadres. The new voter education project is running, supervised by Andrew Young, who we're going to get to in a second, and with help from Septima Clark's citizen schools. And the indispensable mechanics came from Jack O'Dell, who was the manager of Stanley Levson's direct mail operation in New York City, New York City's SCL office. And let's delve into O'Dell in a second. Let's take a short break. Delve into who is Jack O'Dell. So five years older than King, he has been left. He had been left as a child to grow up in a home of his grandfather, a janitor in a Detroit uh, public library, and grandmother who raised him, a devout, strict, devout Catholic. Uh, that O'Dell remained an altar boy even in college at Xavier in New Orleans during World War II. He ferried war cargoes under destroyer escorts for the Coast Guard Merchant Marine, and like Harry Belafonte, first encountered political history through Negro sailors who introduced him to the works of none other than, I'm not going to say it, the highly esteemed W.E.B. Du Bois. He spent long hours below decks reading Du Bois on Reconstruction, World History, the NAACP, and the Subjugation of Africa. Then he went back to New Orleans after the war and found work as an organizer for his union— uh, here's an episode of um, Labor History. The National Maritime Union. I did not know this. It was the first union to break the color line, Branch says. Shipping jobs were not posted by race. One of its first international officers was black. It had, cl- it had a close CP following, but what anti-communism, factionalism, factionalism sort of bubbled up in the labor movement, Odell was expelled for circulating peace petitions in 1950. He found work selling burial insurance in Birmingham, and then by 1957, his skills with numbers got him promoted to manager in Montgomery, where he saw King speak, which is interesting because he doesn't show up in that part of the book, so he must have been whatever he was around. Uh, oh, I guess he... Le- I don't know. Anyway, he leaves. He later goes to New York City, goes to grad school, meets Bayard Rustin in 1959, and helps with youth marches to integrate schools in New York City. Odell then helps, uh, meets up with Levison, uh, helps promote a Sammy Davis 
Frank Sinatra benefit show for the SCLC at Carnegie Hall just after Kennedy's inaugurated. He becomes like the data logistics man for fundraising and direct mail, bringing in $80,000. He's the branch says he's the keeper of lists, statistician of votes, designer of systems. And uh, he's just one of these like forgotten heroes of history in a, in a way, you know. He's really special for a couple of reasons, I think. Um, the, the combination of experiences he has makes him really valuable, right? So he has this early intellectual background, which he then develops going to graduate school, right? He has the experience of the union and of uh, what was at the time a campaigning union um, with a very strong um backbone of, of black membership he's kind of like Bayard Rustin's story a little bit you know it's like well I I, I think it, in this sense he I don't think Bayard Rustin personally had the rank and file member no. organizing experience he but, was organizing communists but, or something well yeah. but then on top of it right right that, no, that's true but in in the labor movement at the, at the at the height of the CIA CIO at the height of its powers but then he goes on to become an insurance salesman mm-hmm. and he goes to grad school for, as business too, right? Like, you know. Right, but I I think that it's imp- and I uh, it's important not to um, underestimate the importance of people who had success in business in the segregated world of mm-hmm. America in the mid twentieth century, right? So t- to be effective selling as a black person, selling insurance to black people. Um, you're developing skills and um, a sense of organization that are just going to be unbelievably valuable, oh, soon, yeah. right? Um, it makes them a really interesting combination of competencies. So now we go to the Dorchester School, which I wish Branch would explain a little more. But this is the Septima Clark place where she's doing adult education. And then Andrew Young, he's an SEL guy. We'll get into him in a second. He's from New Orleans. I'm going to mention that. He goes south as the Field Foundation's new supervisor for Septima Clark Citizen School. Do you remember this little note about the Field Foundation? Which I don't think he explains what the Field Foundation is, but it's like another thing. I don't know. Maybe you just know it because you know what it is. But anyways, his job was to connect New York philanthropy to the civil rights movement by steering tax-exempt money into voter registration. Branch paints young... Andrew Young, as a little academic, like upper class, he does come from New Orleans. He's a light-skinned, upper-class black guy, kind of, educated. His dad's a dentist. Uh, he, he says Young sort of looks down or doesn't, not in awe or enamored with, like, the black Baptist preachers of the South. Septima, Septima Clark's doing this literacy adult education, and she has, like, a gift for just, you know, gelling, vibing with these people, recognizing nat- natural leaders among the poorly educated. And she also, he says, has branches. There was an invisible edge to her. When Clark and Young meet up, it's not so smooth and it's not great. Young is not used to slumming it with the plebes, basically. Uh, It's a big adjustment for him. And Clark said, you know, Septima Clark said, look, these are people who, if they ever make it to the beach, they put sand in a Coke bottle to prove that they've been to the ocean. And there's a scene where she also says... You're, if you're going to eat dinner, you got to eat with them. You have to sit with them. You know, you can't just be giving lofty. I don't know if she says this, but the idea is like you can't be giving lofty speeches and not being present with the participants. Like, hey, buddy, come on, relax, join in with what's going on here. 
and I love this little scene because it shows like the hard work and what a remarkable saint-like person Saint Septima Clark is and how young it seems like does get the picture and then ends up doing that kind of stuff and then you know is is educating and teaching people but it's not a uh, you know it's not textbook and whatnot the the meeting and the the tension between young and clark is a, a really nice um kind of vignette yes, of, yeah. of class difference and cultural difference inside the black community the the point about young's background in in new orleans is is interesting i am um, i did a a project in new orleans once and I found that everything I had learned about race in the Midwest didn't really serve me very well. That New Orleans has its own, I don't know how else to say it, sort of caste system yeah, yeah. within the black community. And it's aligned along religion and it's aligned along um, skin color and, and family origin. And so you, you in, in, in a few lines, you get this picture of... of Andrew Young as, as a young and very gifted person coming from a position of relative privilege who is actually trying to make a decision about do I want to spend time in the civil rights movement or I could just go and do more work in these foundations and that's get, right and actually earn a lot more money yeah a lot more no we, I, I don't want to disparage him because it's like he he does it like he does go down there and uh, he's he wants to participate but he he does he does not have the experience on the ground and the experience of life that Clark does right mm -mm. and there's another piece that um, uh, branch draws out about how Clark is very aware that King's own family treat her as of a lower class than them mm -hmm. and that that I think it was King's mother wouldn't bring her into a certain part of the house um, that that she was she she is um, and of course, the work she's doing is identifying and developing leaders from among the the lower echelons of, of black oh, society, yeah, working class people, people who uh, didn't have uh, university education, in many cases didn't have high school education, right? So, and yet, and so she's extremely uh, attuned to... There's the, some mention of like, a, you know, you're taking an airplane down here and spending all this money... Forget how that went, right. but yeah. That if you take this food that you have and eat it by yourself, well, they don't have any food. They will be distant and separate from you. But if you share what you have and you sit with them and interact with them, then you're building bonds of trust with them, right? Like it, it's actually like what you can see why Young, being really thoughtful and smart, when she points this out to him, he understands, even though he's irritated by it, yeah. that it's absolutely true, right? And that. I think there's always going to be this tension because, look, it's. I think it's true in in every social movement. If you have the advantage of going to um, Howard or right. Mor or Morehouse or, or or let alone white universities, you have all this preparation and training. If you've been taught to be a minister right. uh, and taught and taught how to preach, then you have these communication advantages. The reason that they have schools for these things is because they actually. That's why sometimes. I liked that Young responded that way, and it's it didn't end with like, well, he said enough with Septima right. Clark, and he left. He's like, okay. And yet, what they need is they need Septima Clark to be able to manage this program, and she has figured out how to to use the fact that um, 
literacy tests as a as a way of excluding people from the franchise that that's going to be a way to not only prepare people to register to vote but also to give them a strong sense of of worth and self and to actually equip people to teach other people mm-hmm. i mean it, it, it's it's one like we, we say in we were saying earlier and i was agreeing with you that there's not like great dramatic events in this chapter except i would say the really rapid success that Septima Clark has replicating this model of organization at the base of society among working class and poor people. Oh, absolutely. And King then, this is this is really cool. King is on a speaking tour and he's doing field work too. Uh, he's holding meetings in uh, country stores and churches on his poor people to people tour. He's preaching voter registration. He tours South Carolina and Georgia. A thousand people sign up for Freedom Corps. Uh, hundreds pass through Septima Clark's training program and Dorchester School. Again, Dorchester is like this historic school originating in educating freed slaves. So it's really, really old. Um, King gets attention in Jet Magazine saying, King's the greatest force since Reconstruction. He's touring the South in a manner more familiar to an office seeker than to a man of the cloth, which I thought was pretty cool. So let's get into some rivalry. Rivalry. Well, I'll just say briefly that it seems like the SCLC has finally figured out how to operate as an organization. Mm -hmm. Like this combination of Young and the foundations bringing in resources, Clark developing this model, and then Odell running uh, organization and also additional fundraising, and King in the field as the person who... Uh, fires people up and brings people together. And then, of course, Levison and um, Rustin in New York providing additional support. The organization functions now. And good segue because, like Branch says, the, the LCL is doing very well. And, and then, so King's trying to repair relations with SNCC and the NAACP. So he agreed to speak at a private SNCC fundraiser in New York hosted by Harry Belafonte. Belafonte um, has a SNCC delegation over to his place without King. And he's like, guys, guys, guys. I don't know if I'll, that's how he talks, but if, if I was acting and playing him, it'd be my, guys, 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 your criticism of King is misguided. They're like, King's too far above the battle. He is too cautious. He is too distracted by his fame. And what does Moses do? Bob Moses is there, of course. And what's he going to do? You know, he's ready to do, say very little. <laughs> um, and so among themselves, the NAA, the N, the SNCC leaders grumble that, you know, Harry, your allegiance to King is grounded in this, like, the entertainer's role, that every show must have a star. And let's pause for a second, because my little editorial is, yes, you need to have, like, a focal leader. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? I don't know. Anarchists, we can have a debate later. Uh, Belafonte argued King was much less bourgeois than he might seem. You know, he said King snickered about uh, Coretta's pearls and pillbox hats. They pressed Belafonte to be more respectful. Um, be respectful of it. Wait, they pressed Belafonte. Um, hold on. They conceded that, like, you know, no other leader other than King could tolerate such effrontery. And they're like, yeah, I mean, I guess you're sort of right, Belafonte, sort of. But anyways, more voter registration school schools start to occur with little press. 
which might be a good thing. But I think there's also a note, by the way, that they're they're not prepared. There's a debate with Belafonte, but they're not prepared to exclude him because yeah, he raises they, money for SNCC too. He raises from yeah, so they're like being so, respectful of him. They're like pushing him, leaning on him, saying yeah, but they're not they're not being jerks. And and we'll see later in this chapter, King actually comes and raises money for SNCC and praises them and doesn't mention the SCLC yeah. once. Right. Anyway. Sullivan case. Sullivan, he was, remember, the police commissioner of Montgomery. Doesn't go away. This is still a problem that could drain the civil rights funds. One of the main issues was that four SCL preachers, four SCLC preachers, could have all their funds confiscated to pay Sullivan $500,000. This is a libel case with the New York Times. Um, Levson saw the Sullivan case as a threat and an opportunity because the lawsuit actually jeopardized newspaper advertising as a fundraising mechanism. So he helped pioneer the direct mail method. And because the lawsuit threatened labor organizers in the South as well as the Black Freedom Fight, he and King had built like strong support with, uh, with unions. The labor interest helped King enlist labor lawyers and actually constitutional experts. I don't know if you can hear children in the background or parents yelling, but sorry. Now we're going to get to this another fun little character here. This is, who is Harry Watchtoll? Is that how you say it? Watchtoll? Watchtoll. Who is Harry Watchtoll? So after this luncheon with some lawyers, King, King um, finds himself alone in a hotel room with a Wall Street lawyer who had a cigar in his mouth, but remorse on his face. <laughs> At 44... Harry Wachtel had made a name for himself as the legal architect for an unreal, for an unreal, Israeli immigrant named Mershoom Rickless, one of uh, the inventors of the modern conglomerate. By perfecting a technique called the leverage buyout, which he essentially bought companies with their own assets, Rickless bought a built a $500 million empire from what seemed to be an irrational combina combination of firms. Harry's reputation as a business predator made him an unlikely sympathizer for King. Wachtel was a Jewish shopkeeper's son and a college radical in the late 1930s, and he vowed to use his law degree for the downtrodden. Hmm. But he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go make some money. He admitted his work was not on the side of the angels to King. That's why he had the downtrodden look. Harry's daughters chastised him because... His conglomerates owned several of the segregated chain stores where they were targeting where they were targets of the sit-ins in the South. And Harry admired King. He told King, this is almost like BS. I don't believe this. Listen, I'm going to resign right now. I'll fall on my sword. I'll resign from my conglomerate business. And King's like, okay, buddy. Well, like, don't bring this on me. Let's. So, so King hesitates and said, uh, I don't think you should do that. Uh, I don't know if he says it in that tone, but he says um, the civil rights movement could uh, you you could be better where you are than out in the street. Harry was you know relieved of uh, not having to commit career suicide and offered to give King money. He's like, okay, great, uh, that sounds good. I'll give you seven thousand bucks. So he asked, hey, uh, you know, Doctor King, what's the name of the tax exempt branch of the SCLC? And then uh, King wearing the dunce cap says, uh, we don't have one. What's that? Or something to, the, something to that effect. So Harry frowned and said, that's a bad idea. You should have a, you know, a tax-exempt branch, and I, I can help you set that up. And 
King's enthused, Harry's enthused. They have a little partnership here. King asked to raise funds also. Hey, hey, do you think you can help raise funds for the Sullivan appeal? And Harry's like, absolutely. I could definitely help with that. And also I have some ideas on the case. And from this moment on, Harry becomes kind of like a Stanley Levison character. Branch writes, they were destined to be paired for years as King's twin Jewish lawyers. While Stanley was a host of union officials, ideologues, and activists from the American Jew- Jewish Congress, Harry knew how to get to the high government officials on the phone and how to touch corporate office officers offices for five-figure donations. What luck. What, like, just random, you know, corporate leader dude, like, I'll help with the civil rights movement. There's, like, one of them. <laughs> well, it's been pointed... I mean, you're, you're making light of this conversation where he's saying, I'll, I'll commit career suicide, and, and King says, don't commit career suicide. But it's been... I think it was Marshall Gantz who wrote that organizing creates opportunities for people to live according to their own values. Mm-hmm. And so the, the background of this, this guy, uh, Wachtel, is actually similar to it's, – it's very similar to Levison, right? So it was someone who was uh, seized of the, the inspiration of radical politics and uh, in the late 30s, he's, he's taken this corporate route. But but is struggling, especially as his children are confronting him, and he. But because he's he's taken this corporate route, he has all kinds of knowledge and information, but also relationships and ability to engage and persuade people who are simply a bigger deal in in commerce and society, and I think probably specifically in the Jewish community than people who Levison can engage, right? Levison, I'm sure that, and um, Branch points this out, that although they sometimes have tension and and sometimes they're they're friendly and collaborating, but Levison, I think, really understands that Wachtel is operating on a different level and is a real asset to the SCLC. And yeah. so they're, they're going to be collaborators because of that. And now we get back to Stanley. I'm just going to call him Stanley now for the rest of the chapter. So 24 hours after this happens, villain of history, J. Edgar Hoover asked, who is this Wachtel guy? Remember, they are wiretapping Stanley. So wiretapping was a painstaking process because they had to edit out the coughs, listen to these long tapes, um, hear the rustling papers, chairs scraping across the floor, a lot of boring talk. Sometimes, you know, he would be too far away from the microphone. Sometimes there'd be loud farts. (laughs) Branch doesn't write that. Um, What they endlessly discussed was, uh, you know, Stan Land's addressing is um, Odell fundraising. That's like what they're hearing. And... They talked to how to best cultivate the wealthy new supporters, such as Harry Wachtel. They discussed calling uh, this new foundation the Gandhi Foundation, which eventually becomes the Gandhi Society of something. Um, the well, kids talking in the background, ruining the show. Okay, the wiretap listening became kind of mundane stuff for, you know, somebody that's an alleged communist agent. But then there's this thing where there's a Supreme Court opening and the FBI and Hoover see that they can get they got some information. So because they're they're listening to Stanley's conversation, they hear that, oh, there's a Supreme Court opening. King and Levinson are talking about who should be nominated, who who, who they should try to support. And there's a back and forth and a discussion 
I guess the idea here, I got a little bored in reading this, but the idea was that Hoover would have this inside information, so he passes it along. It ends up not... Oh, I, I think it's a, it's a little different than that. It's... it's um, But wait... Uh, not just the inf- inside information, but like that uh, the communists are infiltrating and like kind of handpicking and guiding like who the choice would be. Is that what your sense is? I, I, I think that's right. That King and Levison are interested in the possibility of advocating for the first black Supreme Court justice. And it, it this turns out to be a moot point because the Ken administration ends up going with Byron White really before they have a chance to, to lobby. But what Hoover hopes to do is use the, the existence of a conversation about lobbying for a candidate to the Supreme Court to illustrate how King, trying to influence Kennedy, because King is influenced by Levison, and according to um, the argument that Hoover never has to justify or prove, that Levison is in fact a secret member of the Communist mm-hmm. Party, and not only that, an agent of the Soviet Union, that this is more or less a direct line of the Soviet Union influencing right. the White House decision-making. Which, yeah. And and so Hoover kind of sharing this information with like political figures dampens this Gandhi Society fundraiser, uh, what is it, like a luncheon meeting, where it supposedly scares away... Uh, Chief Justice, RFK, LBJ, Hubert Humphrey, and a host of others. And this was kind of like Hoover warning people to be wary of King, um, you know, be wary of civil rights activists. But maybe, you know, Hoover overplayed his hand, Branch says, because Levson now was subpoenaed because people have this information and they're like, oh, oh, there's a communist there. And, and you know, we got this information. They're trying to handpick the next Supreme Court. Um, so he's subpoenaed to the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee. And this was from the hard right wingers, segregationist Senator James Eastland. We talked about him, I think, once before. Uh, John McClellan. So these FBI dudes were upset because they're like, no, this is too early. You're not going to really have anything on Levson. So Stanley's awesome in this meeting. He goes, to dispose of a question causing current apprehension, I am a loyal American and I am not now and never have been a member of the Communist Party. And then after that, he invokes his Fifth Amendment. This enrages the senators who were loath to admit the FBI had taken the risk for no return. Um, so there's that. Now we want to get see all these little tidbits. Any thoughts on that? I'm going to move to... Little another tidbit till we get to finishing up the chapter. No, I'm mean, okay. we can move forward. I think it's Harris simple. Wolford. Remember him? He was the guy that Kennedy appointed as a special assistant to the president for civil rights. He was instrumental, as that's maybe overstatement with Sergeant Shriver and trying to get Kennedy elected at the end of the year. He was kind of like a liaison with King and Kennedy. Correct? That's basically a good summary of him. Sure. He 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 was a campaign aide who becomes the the civil rights liaison for the administration. So he is getting frustrated in his position. Kennedy's kind of ignoring him. They're not having a good relation because, like, Kennedy's, like, just growing weary of civil rights. So he resigns. He's just like, you know what? I'm not doing this. Like, he resigns in good faith and doesn't make a stink about it. Uh, There's this little tidbit about civil rights supporters sending um, a ton of pens to the White House to say, 
you know, John F. Kennedy was going to put in, into legislation defending civil rights. So there was like ink for jack pens. Right. I'm going to I'm going to do away with segregation in housing with the stroke of a pen. And never happened. And so they, they send in all these pens and they think they're I thought it was interesting how um, just as someone who from time to time gets involved in campaigns to influence politicians, how so the civil rights movement is in the situation where they have a relatively sympathetic administration. They don't want to burn down their relationship yeah. with this politician the president, um, but they also want to create some creative tension. They want to move things forward. They're concerned things are not moving at all. And so they come up with this, what they think is clever, yeah. like cutesy. Okay. Let's send you a pen. You can, you can sign that, uh, yeah. sign that executive order right now, buddy. And, but the staff of the white house are, uh, offended. They think that these black activists are making fun of the president. And then they start making fun of Wofford. <laughs> they send all the pens, pens to his office disabled. so people go by and say, hey, do you have any spare pens? Yeah, I'm out right. of pens. Right. Yeah, right. And so it, it, it becomes this strange way to marginalize, or it, the the, uh, the inadvertent effect is to marginalize Wofford until he eventually resigns and goes to join the Peace Corps in Ethiopia. <laughs> That's right. He, that, that was just funny and sad. Like, okay, I'm done. I'm, leave, I'm going to Africa. But it, it, it makes me... D- d- think of different tactics we've come up with to try to to lean on somebody and it's it's it, it makes you think how um did it backfire you, you, you never quite really understand how, how these why. things these tactics are perceived yeah. inside the the box so it's 1962 remember it's uh we're going to may 1516 and the selc board meeting in chattanooga tennessee again king is here and he's reminding everybody that there's going to be a challenge occurring in Birmingham in September when then there's going to be a convention. Then we get some report backs from Wyatt Walker, who describes the people-to-people tours. Jack O'Dell gives some facts and figures on voter education projects and grants and newly registered voters. Septima Clark and Andrew Young and Dorothy Cotton uh, talk about the raw recruits from the people-to-people tours and later how those people were fed into the voter registration projects. They actually show a film on Clark's classes at Dorchester, including a segment, this must have been moving, showing a group of middle-aged black people learning to write their names. When I read that, I was like, that's what our society should be doing. Like, this is so appalling. I mean, it's awesome, but why were they, why wasn't our a functional society through school and everything else doing this? Anyways, well, we know why. But the program already spawned six small schools, which is cool. And the area of Mississippi, uh, this was heartwarming to see people rise up so quickly from illiteracy to full-fledged registration work. Then there's this like funny scene, weird, um, kind of, I don't know, there's a floor discussion that pits, it's not bad, but it's the, the, this Reverend Rollin Smith says he wants King to be paid at this, at the foundation, you know, the SELC, he's getting a dollar a year. And he's like, you need to be paid. If you were a leader of a white organization, you'd be paid. Like, come on, it's time to get paid. And he's like, no, 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 it's not, I don't, I'm not in for that. And I think it's just a point of our black leaders should be professional and should be paid. And then Daddy King even comes in and I, I, I wasn't so surprised, but he's like, no, my son's right. Don't worry about this. We just put this to rest. And it kind of does get put to rest. Um, but Well, he starts off like that, but he actually comes around to say, 
you have to you have to ignore my son on this and it's it's really MLK versus everybody else in the of the pastors and it it's um i think a, a really interesting moment where king's own like humility is both both humility and also sense of detachment and implicit um distaste with with the um the class position mm-hmm. of the clergy puts him totally at odds with everybody who actually is in that position right. and have worked really hard through their whole lives to build up that position as, because as the ML, clergy. And, and King is sort of like independently, to say independently wealthy is an overstatement, but he's comfortable already. Sure. But if he doesn't perpetuate the structure, and in fact, if he makes a point of only taking a dollar, then it, it does implicitly raise the question, why are all these other pastors living very, very well yeah. when the people in the pews are working class right. and, and poor people? And it's, it's a sort of intolerable tension that his, you could say, ethics and morality and um, almost unique perspective is, is imposing on his his father's generation and and other other pastors it's an interesting moment of tension and i think they yeah. just create a committee to study the issue or something yeah um and then they recommend electing a couple young board members they uh elect john lewis and hosea williams to be part of the young blood of the sclc then king immediately leaves to go to an organization that i'm going to yell about called the gandhi society for human rights <laughs> Um, what do I think about this whole India Gandhi thing? I mean, we all know if you listen to past episodes and I'm right. And here's why I'm right. Well, so this is a bad idea for a number of reasons. <laughs> I, like, this is my little, my little thing. Everything should be wrapped in the American flag, baseball, hamburgers, hot dogs. You should not wrap it in a non-Christian Indian thing, even though, we understand the the merit of Gandhi and how great he is. It's not going to play well, and it doesn't. So King goes to this lawyer's luncheon. It seems like there's a lot of those, or maybe I'm crowbarring them in. I don't know. And he, this is right after the SELC convention, and he says, uh, you know, nonviolence is now woven into the fabric of American life in hundreds um, uh, across across the South. Many Southerners are pathetically trapped by their own devices they know that they perpetuate perpetuation of this archaic time order is hindering the rapid growth of the South. Yet they cannot speak this truth. They are imprisoned by their own lies. It is history's uh, wry paradox that when Negroes win the struggle to be free, those who have held down those oh, I this wrong, those who have held them down will themselves be free for the first time. King announces, you know, uh, this. Second Emancipation Proclamation that he's delivering to the White House. This was a lot of work. This is supposed to be continuing what Abraham Lincoln started. He's going to ask the White House to proclaim all segregation statutes of all Southern states to be contrary to the Constitution and that the full powers of the White House be employed to avoid their enforcement. This document took like six months to write up. Stanley was writing it. I'm sure Rustin and, you know, Walker, all that stuff, the whole brain trust were part of this. Unfortunately, the Gandhian society speech gets like no publicity at all. And it ends up getting criticism because it's like, why are you calling it the Gandhi society and we're a bunch of Christians and who's this guy again? And it just doesn't land. It ends up being uh, 
this organization does get funding and gets traction amongst labor leaders because they see the benefit in using this to support fighting the Solomon case for, you know, the tax exempt reasons. Um, but it just seems like it's the air was let out of the balloon and you just hear like, a wah, 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 wah. right, right. The Gandhi Society ends up being a bank account that people who find common cause with the SCLC can put money into, specifically trade union leaders. Yeah. But the idea that it becomes this center for nonviolent, nonviolent thought in America doesn't really go no. anywhere. And at the same time, this is happening. So everything's like sad and kind of feel bummed about this not taking off. JFK has a birthday party. JFK, president, has a birthday party. And it's probably the most uh, well-known presidential birthday party in American happy history. Happy birthday, Mr. President. And Marilyn Monroe sings him happy birthday. What a weird, weird thing. Okay, here's the vignette, Gabe, that I want to yell at Branch about. And you can correct me. It's not a big deal, but... He goes on like two pages talking about Nelson Rockefeller's divorce, all this crap about Nelson Rockefeller. He's a governor of New York. Um, he's getting divorced. He's horrible to his ex-wife, has her move out of state or something like that. He thinks he's going to be a leading uh, candidate for president. And the only thing I can glean from why this is in there is that he gives this speech at Morehouse college saying demand and get the equal chance, you know, Morehouse college, black college demand and get the equal chance. That is your birthright as Americans branch throw this in. Why? I think it's because he's pointing out that branch is ahead of Kennedy on civil rights. I mean, he's a liberal Rockefeller is. Oh yeah. Who did I say? Branch. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Rockefeller's ahead of Kennedy on civil rights. He's a liberal Republican from New York. He doesn't have to face a lot of these consequences and stuff. But um, I don't know. I just like I didn't understand why we're talking about that. <laughs> I think it's just I think it's just more context and, and sort of preparation. I, I think um, I mean, it's it's very hard to think about history and what might have been. Right. Because, of course, we know that. um the Maybe politics, if he wasn't the politics of the Republican Party takes a very different direction, oh, sure. but you know, you could you could imagine a political matchup where a surviving John F. Kennedy and Nelson Rockefeller are are competing over who actually can have a more progressive social policy. That would be an interesting race, right? didn't happen and maybe the divorce right. was just like that was a component of why he couldn't go forward anyways then we get into branch talks about atlanta versus birmingham sort of atlanta gets like integrated baseball crowds they get belafonte to come to an integrated crowd and the, the uh, prosperity there where birmingham is still way behind they're forfeit or they're forfeiting this progress but there still is an incident in atlanta I, th I think there's a baseball i'm not an expert on baseball but they describe a baseball team uh, disbanding rather than than play when a league gets integrated. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, I, 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 I made a, a minor league. I thought uh, it was I thought it was about the crowds, but okay. Anyways, but um, so there's still this confrontation at a plush plush restaurant in Atlanta, and King is thinking like, oh, we need to have a protest over it, or you know, cause a stink. He does not, and he's got to go to Shreveport, Louisiana, the next day. But the KKK says, if you come to Shreveport, Louisiana, we're going to kill you. So KKK threat is taken seriously by the Justice Department. King and Walker go to Little Union Baptist Church. Oh, this is, okay, this scene I want to dwell on. 
this is like it's Kafka esque the term. Like I don't know. Like why this these people these people in the South. Ugh. So Marshall the the, Mar, the um the police commissioner Earl Downs agrees from the to get contacted by the justice justice department says okay I'll protect King I'll protect them in the church. And then Walker, remember Wyatt Walker is a little cocky. Maybe it's because of him, um, but this actually makes me just like him so much more after this scene. He goes outside to talk to Earl Downs, the police commissioner. They have an unpleasant conversation, and he asks him, hey, I'd like to, you guys to establish the rear of the church is going to be covered. I can see him kind of saying this in a you know, a know-it-all cocky way. And Branch says that Walker, Walker's, remember, this is a black man, telling a police officer what to do. Walker's executive manner and possibly the detailed labeled uh, clipboard he also carried so incensed uh, Earl Downs that he ordered his men to arrest Walker for loitering on the church steps. Remember, Downs is there to protect King and Walker and then he arrests him. Okay, so this is one of the craziest scenes in world history. It's not, but it's for me just this little... So he's taken to jail, interviewed by the city coroner. So he, there's this meeting going on in the in the church. King's going on. There's people there. King's like locked away in, the, in this church basement. And the city coroner starts to interrogate Walker about his sanity. So, Mr. Walker, uh, how long uh, have you believed in integration? Um, uh, do you think there are people out to get you? like what is going on here anyways walker had no he gets released there's no time to reflect on this or protesters they like leave here they go to chicago he goes any thoughts on that gabe i just th that was to me just a bizarre bizarre situation it's it's just another example of uh how deeply permeated the state can be with with white supremacy and how all these different actors the local coroner sort of take it up take it upon themselves to use every tool and, and idea in their heads uh, to constrain and stick people. to looking at dead bodies coroner, um, not to civil rights activists. So this was interesting to me. Walker goes to Chicago for two days of exploratory talks with representatives of Billy Graham. Remember Billy Graham is a white evangelical who has a pretty good relationship with King sort of like they respect behind the, the scenes, behind the scenes, yeah. like they respect each other. Billy Graham is by no means a civil rights activist at all, but they they're friendly with each other. Uh, although they did not work together, Graham and King did cooperate privately through their lieutenants and Graham's media advisor. Uh, this guy Bennett said, Hey man, King's doing things wrong. He's given too many speeches. He's doing too much. At this pace, this is going to kill him. He's going to have a heart attack or he's going to die of exhaustion in five years. See, what Graham does is he just gives a couple big exposures, you know, a couple big events, you know, and we do an enormous amount of preparation before those. And then that breaks through the non-religious news cycle and we're able to get out into bigger aspects of the press. And then Graham's chief of staff explains to Walker the whole mechanical process of organizing and explains how there's this preparation, other preachers that are kind of doing some footwork, uh, church women, you know, there's like a million man hours of unseen preparation before Graham does these events. And Walker took these like guidelines back to King to see, you know, maybe we should think about this a little bit, but you know, obviously there's the whole obstacle of race that Graham doesn't have to, to deal with. Um, I thought that was interesting because it seemed, um, 
weird. Like, well, okay, now I'm going to go meet with Billy Graham and get some suggestions, but they were happy to sit down with him. They're not going to throw their lot in with civil rights, but it's also like, okay, you're... You, and also this time, at, this, at the same time, Graham is building a closer relationship with Nixon. So even though he's like getting more into Nixon, he's like, yeah, my guys can talk to King's guys and give him some suggestions. Well, it feels like there may have been an aspect of both genuine interest and, and genuine sympathy on both sides of the conversation, as well as some sort of profound misunderstandings that it, 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 it brings to mind the confrontations in the earlier chapters around control of the National Baptist Convention, right? That it's not, it, it takes a long time for King and his sort of cadre to understand that they're not going to be able to use the church itself as the structure and that the church, even the black, the black church is not going to be an organ of struggle. Right. And I don't think they expect Billy Graham to, to stop talking to segregated crowds, but I think they're really hopeful that they can learn something from him. And yeah, that's what it seems like. Billy Graham's people think they can teach something. Um, and look, if if you look if you look at the the detailed planning, I mean, there there may be some general lessons that you can learn. But if you're not actually trying to change um, power structures in society, then you're in a different business, right? And that's why I thought the Graham people were sort of wrong because they're right if he's just trying to have big events and be civil rights celebrity, but it's good for him to be doing the people to people tour and stuff and like being all this, maybe, maybe the burnout lesson should be, Hey, let's, let's take it easy. But earlier in the chapter, there's an example of, of King barnstorming through different parts of the South and he meets at a country store. One person, one one person. I I walked 13 miles to meet you, Dr. King. Right. And through the lens of the Billy Graham crusades, what a a total waste. waste, (laughs) Right. But, I wonder from an organizing perspective, like what that person who walked 13 miles and met Dr. King, like who did he talk to? Who did he influence? And then people know that like he's going to be Who here. did he encourage yeah. to go to a Septima Clark school or talk to SNCC? That's that's the thing that, that doesn't really translate. Yeah. So there's the NAACP convention. We're almost done, by the way, guys. It's uh, NAACP convention. NAACP convention. Um, King is there. He makes this roaring speech about, you know, why we got to break the law. Nonviolence is, you know, our method. Um, we want our freedom here, he says, in America, here in the Black Belt of Mississippi, here behind the cotton curtain of Alabama, here on the red clay of Georgia. We have lived with gradualism, and we know that it is nothing. I think he actually says nothingism, but do nothingism, actually. And escapism, which ends up in a standstill-ism. He, he does this ism thing, and the crowd starts laughing. It's funny. Uh, then he kind of steps it up, and the crowd's kind of going crazy. And he's he's he came there as a guest to kind of give this speech, and he ends up kind of stealing the crowd, essentially, at the NAACP convention. And some of the leaders were sort of miffed by this because he's preaching you know, the nonviolent SCLC style of doing things. And that's not really the NAACP modus operandi. Um, and of course, this speech doesn't register in the white world, which, which is 
whatever. It is what it is. Uh, I thought that was cool. We're going to finish up in a second. Any thoughts on that little NAACP meeting? Well, I, I, I admire the way that, that King interacts with and relates to both SNCC and the NAACP. And he is true to who he is, and he's trying to inspire people and move people to think about things from his perspective. But he never treats them as as rivals or as 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 part of the problem, even when some of their leaders are really very negative, frankly. And he seems to be, in this chapter, he gives that dark speech more to his people, mm. and then he gives like the more positive... Um, some of the more the, the Gandhian thing, a little more positive stuff to like the not his not his gang. So the chapter ends. Remember, we last last episode we were in Albany, uh, which was painful for me. I didn't. It just was awful. It was awful for King. It was just not a good situation. But we're going back to Albany. So King is planning. This is 1962. We were in Albany in you know October, November, December of 1961, he has a meeting for a sentencing July 10th in Albany. And I want to go back in time and say, just pay the $178. Don't go back there. Just pay it. Let's focus on other things. (laughs) I don't even know what happened. So I'm not saying that with foresight into reading into the future. But the mood was not good in Albany, Georgia. Democratic Party Chairman James Gray wrote a front page editorial on the Albany Herald's denouncing, oh, this is so dumb, Denouncing black activists as using the Hitlerian tactic of the big lie. The Negroes are lying. The Department of Justice knows they are lying. This sordid effort will fail as all the craft and cunning the Negro agitators have employed. And their plotting for months have failed. It will fail because its motivation is essentially evil. Oh, James Gray. Feel bad for you, buddy. So Walker drives Albany... Walker... Wyatt Walker drives um, Abernathy and King to Albany, Georgia... And instead of paying the fine of $178, they are going to serve 45 days in jail. And that is where the chapter ends. Thoughts? Well, <laughs> uh, if you take a, uh, a nonviolent view that you're going to defy unjust laws, then you have to keep going yeah. to dealing with the consequences of that. And uh, it's an aspect that... Uh, SNCC and SCLC uh, have in common. And wasn't there a secretary that was like, can you just go to this thing first before you go to jail? Like, there's a couple <laughs> things you got to do. And King's like, well, I'm going to jail. And I, I, what was, there was a funny thing where like, can you just have the newspaper ready for me? Or he's like, they're, they're ready to just like hunker down and be there. So anyways, uh, kind of a weird chapter, kind of a weird episode, a lot of little tidbits. 1962, if you look in civil rights history, there's not a lot of flashpoints. And we're, I guess, halfway through it. We'll see where we go. Um, but, you know, hopefully we're done with the FBI stuff. I'm sure that's going to pop up a little bit. But um, I don't think we're done with the FBI. <laughs> I don't think we are either. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you maybe next week. I don't know. 